Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 14, Robotic Arms in Space. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So if you're new to the show, this is where we bring in NASA experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to tell you the cool stuff about what's going here, what's going on here at NASA. So today we're talking with Tim Braithwaite. He's the Canadian Space Agency's liaison manager here at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. And we talked about the robotic arms in space, which is perfect because astronauts aboard the International Space Station are going to perform three spacewalks in the month of October. And in all three, the astronauts are working on the Canadarm2, which we'll be talking about in this episode, along with how it was developed and how it works today, how the technology helps people here on Earth, and what's coming up in the future. But uh, for a lot of episodes, we tie topics to what's going on today here in space and try to explain it at a high level. We're always listening to what you want to hear about, and uh, we're looking on social media especially. So if you've listened to previous episodes, we tell you where to ask uh, uh, these questions so we can put it in the podcast at the end of, of every episode. So I wanted to answer this Twitter question from Jennifer, who asked about uh, the Mich- after the Mission Control episode, uh, when you run an experiment, are scientists invited to the Mission Control Center? Uh, so I went and did some digging and found out that sometimes they come to Mission Control Houston, but a lot of the times they're patched through from the Payload Operation Integration Center at Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. They're patched all the way to up to the astronauts on the International Space Station. Otherwise, they can be patched through from a remote location, and they sort of help uh, walk the astronauts through, through, through some of their tasks, and sometimes they could just kind of watch and monitor as they're doing. So... Anyway, today we're going to be talking about robotic arms in space, in space with Mr. Tim Braithwaite. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to that talk. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. So thanks for coming on, and I know it's been particularly busy recently, especially because in the month of October, we have a few spacewalks going up that are particularly focusing on robotic arms, right? Specifically the the Canadarm2. Exactly. Uh, This first spacewalk, especially on Thursday the 5th, is pretty much entirely dedicated to replacing one of our two latching end effectors on Canadarm2. Okay. And what's what's a latching end effector? The arm is more or less symmetrical, and at each end, Hmm. you kind of call it the the working hand of the arm. It's what we call a latching end effector. We usually call it a Lee, L-E-E. Okay, lots of acronyms here. It's it's not a hand in the sense that it has fingers, but there are grappling and latching mechanisms that will allow you to capture a a free-flying cargo vehicle in space or step onto another module on the space station and make that the new operating base, then release the other end, and the arm can walk end over end oh. with that. But the the latching end effector package, it's, it's, it's a big thing. It's a, sort of a cylinder, a little over a meter long, weighs over 200 kilograms. Wow. So it's a big package. There are three different mechanisms with gear trains of their own, lots of onboard electronics, what we call a force and moment sensor. And so when the when that Lee is the tip of the arm, it can actually sense how hard it's pushing against something or how hard something's pushing back. 
Hmm. So, and that's very useful if we are inserting uh, a big item. The, the Japanese cargo vehicle has a, an external pallet that we extract and then reinsert like a drawer into a chest of drawers. And imagine if you're doing that at home, huh. being able to feel how you're lined up and feel the forces on one side or the other, ah. that's a very useful thing to getting the drawer all the way in successfully. Right. And the same sort of principles apply with Canadarm2. That force and moment sensor capability is very useful. But that's all part of that big, pretty complex package in the Canadarm2 lease. Okay. So latching and defector, and we can get into some of the more specific things later here and just focusing on, you know, how that works and what it can grab. Um, but, you know, I really wanted to have this conversation today because of because of this, right? You know, we're replacing a latching and defector, and then we got some regular maintenance coming up, too, with some of the other spacewalks. But really, this kind of begs the question for just, you know, a robotic arm, the idea of a robotic arm in space. So if you can kind of give, like, a general overview of, of what a robotic arm in space does, because it is significant. It, they, robotic arms do a lot of things, uh, yeah. and often things, honestly, that you didn't necessarily anticipate. Hmm. So going all the way back to the space shuttle program, when NASA was planning out its space shuttle back in the 70s, yeah. they started a dialogue with the Canadian government. This was actually before the Canadian Space, space Agency existed. Back then, it was the National Research Council of Canada. Oh. And they started a dialogue, and by sort of the mid-1970s, had an agreement going forward that Canada would provide what we called a remote manipulator system. And that's the robotic arm, that familiar arm that you see in all those pictures of the space shuttle. Yeah. And the first Canada arm, as we called it in Canada, flew on STS-2. On the, on the on, space shuttle? On the very second flight that wow. they... they flew an arm on that. There wasn't an arm on every single space shuttle flight, but that was the first one there was, and they deployed it and checked it out and started learning what an arm could do for you. <laughs> the original concept was that they might deploy satellites out of the payload bay, catch satellites, and either service them or in bring them back to Earth. But what we saw over those first years of operation with the space shuttle was that they were thinking of things that they hadn't anticipated. Hmm. I remember one case in particular, um, the space shuttle sometimes vented fluids out the sides. They just vented stuff overboard. And one time, the vent wasn't working quite right, and an icicle grew out of the side of the space shuttle. Ooh. And they were concerned about that. It might break off during reentry. It might be a problem. Yeah. So they planned this operation. No one ever imagined that they would knock the icicle off with the robotic arm no but that way. was one of many and and there were other things too trying to throw a switch on the outside of a rotating satellite using huh. using the arm just things you hadn't thought of and that's the great potential for flexibility that this sort of robotic arm can give you you have a capability to go look at things up close because there's a camera on the end oh, okay you I mean, during the course of the space station program, years later, we started capturing free-flying cargo vehicles. The very first one was the Japanese cargo vehicle, the HTV-1. I think that was in 2009. Okay. And that was years after the arm arrived on space station back in 2001. And all this work and actually some expansion capability of the arm to satisfy all the safety requirements so we could do that, yeah. have this big spacecraft. 
<laughs> gently fly up under the space station and sit there, and the arm would reach out and securely grasp it and then attach it to the space station. I mean, that's, again, part of that expanding capability that's been so neat. Yeah. I mean, you think about the the human arm, right? You think about just the fact that it's got that joint, and then at the tip of it is a hand. And the hand is not meant for just one task, right? The hand is meant to do a bunch of different things and kind of manipulate. Was Is there some sort of engineering that went into the hand, or the robotic arm that sort of emulates that of a hand to be as flexible as possible with all these tasks you're talking about? Well, just as with a human arm, we can make ourselves tools okay. um, that we would go use, yeah. we have the same capability to go do that with robotics. For the Canadarm2 end effector, which is quite similar to it, it's evolved from that original shuttle arm end effector. It was designed in particular to be able to release uh, a, a satellite, to deploy it in space, and not leave any residual rates on it. Hmm. It had to be able to let it go and not have it be moving or tumbling or anything. It had to let it go and it would be perfectly still. Ah. And they could back away without any rates on it. So the, the mechanisms that we have with the, we have these steel cables, which we call snare cables. Yeah. And that whole assembly is designed to be able to let it go and have it be perfectly still. So that was the basis of that. Okay. But for space station, the proper name of our whole system, the whole suite of robotics, is actually the mobile servicing system. We are there, these Canadian robots are here to service the space station. We're here to do maintenance. Oh. So beyond just the Canadarm2, which is a big arm, does a lot of heavy lifting, it can move remarkably large, massive objects. Mm -hmm. We also built a two-armed maintenance robot, which we call Dexter. <laughs> it's the, the special purpose dexterous manipulator, but we call it Dexter. Sure. Um, it looks, it's got two arms. It looks a little bit like a guy, but it's actually really big. Huh. But these dexterous arms, which have a smaller, a different kind of end effector on those smaller arms, they're able to do more dexterous tasks, more refined. We can replace small electronic boxes on the outside of the space station. We've done that a few times now with uh, power controller modules that need to be replaced. Mm -hmm. um, other boxes which were designed for robotic maintenance. The, the interfaces on these boxes must match the design of the hand hmm. uh, that these end effectors, uh, whether on Dexter or on Canadarm2. But if it's designed for that, uh, we, and we've demonstrated, we can do a lot of really cool maintenance that relieves the space station crew from having to go outside and do spacewalks, which are very cool, but they take a lot of time. Right. And that allow, frees them up to stay inside and do science and research and all that great stuff. Absolutely. I mean, the whole benefit of sending humans out into uh, to do spacewalks is, you know, first of all, they can make decisions real time and it's really quick on what they can do. But you know, they have hands. They can use tools. And those tools are meant to operate, you know, and fix things on the outside of the station. But you're saying that, you know, Dexter, in a way, at the end of the Canadarm2, can accomplish a lot of the tasks and, and do some of the service work that the astronauts would otherwise have to do. Right. I mean, Dexter, in one sense, is a tool. Hmm. The robots themselves, they are not thinking for themselves. We can't, we're not yet at the point where we can tell it, go 
change out that box, and it goes and does it on its own. As cool as that would be. As cool as that will be, <laughs> and there will come a time when that will be. However, we are, we are not there yet. Okay. When we started out, when we first launched the arm, just like the shuttle arm, on the space station, we had a system that had to be operated by the crew on orbit. And there are what we there is what we call the robotics workstation, uh, one in the lab module, one in the cupola where all the windows are, mm-hmm. and the astronauts can be there, and they can operate the arm, and they have hand controllers, and they throw the switches, and they have monitors that show the camera views from cameras on the arm, cameras elsewhere on the station. And what we realized, actually after the arm was flown, was that as much work as we do on space station we could do this from the ground. We could remotely operate these robots safely from the ground. And during the course of space station assembly, and that was one of the great accomplishments, especially for, mostly for Canadarm2, mm. was assembly of the space station. There are very few pieces of the big pieces on the U.S. segment of the space station, whether modules or big pieces of truss, that weren't handled by Canadarm2. Wow. Yeah, I mean, whether it, I mean, often the shuttle arm had to take it, these things out of the payload bay of the shuttle when it came up, hand it off to Canadarm2, and they would then be installed. And the, the station was built up in that way. So Canadarm2, in a very real sense, assembled the space station. Absolutely. But, but once we got past that, we realized we can do a lot of this work by remotely operating this system from the ground, hmm. especially when we operate. Dexter, if we're going to go do maintenance, one of those power controller module replacements, doing it robotically can take actually quite a long time. All the end-to-end work, getting the spare, getting to the work site, pulling the old one out, putting the new one in, that can actually take a couple days even in a a long, complex case. Mm -hmm. And the astronauts on board are too busy for that. So we figured, we went through this long process, a lot of it dealing with the safety processes, making sure we had what we call enough fault tolerance that no one failure could really leave us in trouble during Mm -hmm. the course of this, and established what we call ground control. And in fact, today, most of the robotics work that goes on on space station is done controlling our robots from the ground, whether here at Mission Control in Houston or we have a support control center in Montreal, in Canada, that connects here to Mission Control, and that one unified Canadian-American team operates the arm Hmm. from the ground. And that's um, a tremendous time saving for the astronaut crew, but also an amazing enhancement for the whole program, because it allows us to just do so much more than we otherwise would. So when it first, so you, you mentioned, you know, when it, when it first launched the Canadarm2 to the International Space Station, it was working hand-in-hand hand with shuttle arms, right? You were, you were talking about a handoff. That was all operated by astronauts, both the shuttle arm and the Canadarm2 from the space station? Absolutely. And, uh, and at that time, we had two flight control teams because we had the space shuttle robotic arm flight mm-hmm. controllers. Yeah. And although it's also a big white arm that says Canada on the side. It's actually quite a different system under the skin. So we had 
those guys, th those flight controllers who built those procedures, worked with the shuttle astronauts to make sure that that procedure would go just right. And then on the space station side, we built the procedures for our system, worked with that crew, and orchestrated what were sometimes fairly complex handoff operations. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're talking about in space, traveling around the Earth at 17,500 miles an hour, two ships, like, pretty much traveling that fast together and handing off stuff to each other. It's the complexity <laughs> of, especially during that, those space shuttle missions. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the whole day was timelined so tightly that everything had to go just right. And we've got in those cases, and this was what I used to do when I first came to Houston, I was working on the space station robotics flight control side. I was what they called a robo. That was the name of our the flight control discipline. And you were in charge of the cannon arm too? Right. Okay. And we had to make sure that these two big robotic arms, well, first and foremost, never bumped into anything, including each other. <laughs> so, you know, monitoring the volumes that they're working in, maybe making sure that while one of them's moving, the other one's not. All of the all of the steps that you would logically take just to make sure that you know exactly where all the moving pieces are. Yeah. And a handoff, something that you and I would do trivially sitting here, handing a pen from one arm to the other. Mm -hmm. the, and again, everything's more complicated when you're doing it with with space robots. You're doing it from far away in space, several robots, several teams. Right. And and also the, the we don't even think about the sophistication that we have with our own arms. We can sense exactly when somebody's pulling too hard yeah. and let go reflexively. The robotic arms aren't instrumented quite that well. So a lot of the work we do is to analyze to make sure that the loads are not going to be so large that the arm gets damaged or the operating base that it's working from gets damaged or the payload that we're handing off gets damaged. Again, the complexity of that big picture is really remarkable. So, I mean, it, in space, though, you think about it, I mean, there's, you don't really have to worry about gravity. So when you're handling these objects, what are you thinking about when handling large payloads? Well, that, and that's right, because yeah. nothing, it, there's not really weight, mm -hmm. but there is still mass. Absolutely. And with mass comes inertia and <laughs> momentum. Yes. And anything that you get moving, you're eventually going to have to slow down. And we have seen that maneuvering modules around. You know, people, not, people often joke that these robots, gosh, they move so slowly. Right. And that's not to say that they couldn't move faster, but if they did, there would be consequences. We have seen you get modules moving really quickly, and all of that momentum then has to be taken out at the other end of the tri of the motion. You got to stop, yeah. Uh, otherwise, you know, the, the the station's orientation would, you know, would have to adjust to that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even the station's orientation changes, you know, when astronauts are working out, and they built systems to mitigate that. So if you're talking about a really large object, I mean, you don't do it right. You can fling. You can. You, you know. You could. You could flip the station over, but because yeah. um, th these modules often weigh tens of thousands of pounds. Wow. And again, we, we maneuver those with great care to make sure that we're managing that momentum mm -hmm. in an intelligent way so that, you know, 
again, the momentum doesn't get the best of us. So by managing momentum, that's where moving things slowly from point A to point B comes into place. Just right. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm guessing there's some sort of special technique, too, in order to do that, right? Because you said, you know, you have to start a motion, but then also stop. Is there like a slow acceleration and then a slow deceleration? Is there a fancy technique you guys use? I'm not sure how fancy a technique it is. Okay. It, it's, we, you, ma you make sure you're not getting it going too fast. Mm -hmm. You want to... The arm is designed to move things in straight lines. If if that is our desire, certainly if we are birthing a module into that birthing interface on the space station, it needs to go in right along that perfect aligned axis yeah. for the mechanism to line up properly. And we can do that. And again, that, that generally needs to happen pretty slowly because mm -hmm. if you push too hard, again, if you pushing that drawer into your chest of drawers at home, if you push it too hard, it's going to bang at the back. And right. or if you're pulling it out and it sticks and you pull harder and harder and harder, all of a sudden when it lets go, we've all felt that, all of a sudden it jerks out at us. Yeah. And we want to avoid that sort of momentum release on the space station. Absolutely. I mean, it seems pretty intuitive to us, right? You know, if you feel something pulling too hard, then, you know, pull a little bit harder or something, make it come out, do what you, you have to do, and you can make those decisions real time. But if you're designing a system to do that, you got to think about all these minute little things. I know, I mean, especially because I do commentary sometimes in Mission Control, and we'll do that for c capturing cargo. So we'll capture a SpaceX Dragon or an orbital ATK Cygnus vehicle, and, you know, it'll have this motion where it captures, and we'll actually go off air for a little bit once it's captured we'll get say the capture time and then we go off air for about an hour maybe maybe hour some change and then we'll come back on when it's in birthing position because it's it's this big procedure you know where it has to turn and we already know what's going to happen so there's a little commentary we can add in between that um but you know there you have that procedure in order to birth it right and that that cargo vehicle which weighs probably tens of thousands of pounds yeah it's going to be flipped around, maneuvered around really slowly. So the space station's momentum management system can sort of keep up with all that and allow the space station to maintain the proper orientation, keep the solar arrays pointed at the sun, keep the antennas pointed at the satellites. Wow. Just a lot of things you have to think of. Um, but, you know, kind of going back to the to the history, you, you briefly mentioned that, I mean, there was a conversation that started with uh, NASA and I'm sorry it was it was not CSA at the that time. It CSA was, was uh, established by an act of parliament in 1989 oh, and okay. before that CSA Canadian Space Agency didn't yeah. exist there was the National Research Council okay and that was sort of the original science organization within the Canadian government that established that relationship with NASA mm -hmm. worked with Canadian industry to design and build what we called the Canadarm, the remote manipulator system. Yeah. And then provide that to be part of the space shuttle program. Okay. So what was the, why did NASA go and have this relationship with the National Resource Council? So what was it, did you already, were you already inventing robotic arms? I think at that time the robotic arm was a relatively new concept. Okay. I, I, there were engineers who realized that this is something that they could do. Hmm. The, the, the industrial group that was part of that, which included uh, what was then called SPAR Aerospace, who were the prime contractor for the robotic arm, they 
they already had a history with antennae and space mechanisms that mm -hmm. went on satellites. And I think this was a natural expansion of something that they could do. And it was a kind of a revolutionary design. It was certainly not something that had been done in space before. Absolutely. And once that capability arrives and you start using it, just as when you get a new tool at home, mm -hmm. it's cool and you play with it. And once you start playing with it, then you really start to say, hey, I could use it for this. Mm -hmm. I could use it for this. And as I was saying before, when little contingencies come up and you go, okay, well, let's go take a look at it with the arm. So you can get the arm in a new position that's never been in and point a camera to take a look at something. Right. Go knock that icicle off, whatever, <laughs> whatever the new capabilities are. And that's what robots bring. Yeah. is this ability to control your environment and expand your capability. Hmm. So whenever you said the first cannon arm flew on STS-2, right? That was pretty relatively quickly. It was, right. it was already on shuttle flights. So what did you start learning uh, through that process of, I guess you went on more shuttle flights after that, right? The, yeah. the cannon arm one? Uh, right, the, the the original Canadarm. Mm -hmm. I don't know the proportion oh, okay. of how many flights it was on, how many it wasn't. Most times that they needed to deploy a satellite, sometimes the satellites would there would be a mechanism that would just sort of pop it out of the payload bay. Yeah. But often, if there was a satellite capture that needed to go on, mm. you needed the arm to have the shuttle fly up. The arm would then reach out grab the satellite and then maybe berth it into something in the payload bay. If there were spacewalks, you could put an astronaut in a foot restraint standing on the end of the arm and have the arm maneuver that astronaut around. Okay. Because again in, again, in space, you're not standing on anything. You're not moving in the conventional sense that we are used to working on a worksite here in 1G. One, in one right. So there was just a series of more and more expansive capabilities. And there are actually some really neat photographs from those early shuttle missions. They were experimenting with building trusses. Hmm. This was before Space Station, and they were imagining how Space Station might be built. Yeah. And some of those early concepts were sort of sticks and balls, and they would make these big trusses and yeah. man maneuver them around. <laughs> That's amazing. So when you're, you know, when you're learning along this way, you have a you have a need, for example, where it says, "Hey, we we need a we have something coming up where we're going to have to probably put an astronaut at the end of this arm." So do you develop um, tools that it can interact with in order to make that happen so they could put their feet in there? Right. And the arm would have needed to be fitted with some sort of socket or fixture so mm. what they call a foot restraint okay. could be really securely attached because you know the last thing you want is you put it on but then when you're standing on it it floats off yeah so because it's all about crew safety and the crew's got to be safely attached and of then course. safely tethered in a redundant way so yes. they don't float away but yeah every time we have a new capability like that often we have to look at the hardware and go okay what do we need to do and adjust or add Mm -hmm. But the thing to remember there, on the space shuttle program, the space shuttle came home after its mission, whether it was one week or two weeks or whatever it was. Right. And the if guys it, at SPAR would get that arm back, and they'd get to lovingly dote over it and see how it was doing. Yeah. And then prepare another arm. And there were a few 
arms that I think got rotated between the space shuttles. They could be taken off and put back on. Right, there are multiple shuttles, multiple missions. Right. Yeah. So that sort of adjustment could be made relatively easy. The difference between that and what we have now on space station is that Canard Arm 2 was launched in April 2001 on a space shuttle mission. It was attached to the space station, mm -hmm. and it's been there ever since. <laughs> still working. Still, still working. Yes, still working more than 16 years later, and wow. that's just a wonderful thing. And what we've really seen is that, especially in recent years, the pace of the robotics work has just been increasing. Mm -hmm. uh, we t I talked about the free-flying cargo vehicles. The very first one, and what a milestone that was in 2009 with the first Japanese cargo vehicle. And then the U.S. commercial vehicles started flying, the SpaceX Dragon yeah. and the orbital ATK Cygnus vehicles. And they did, it, they did their demo flights, then they would start, and the pace has been increasing. So now we do one of the, we, we are capturing a free-flying cargo vehicle every month or two. That's right. We have All, two coming up in November. Right. This year, this calendar year, 2017, all going when all going well, we will have done six free-flying cargo vehicles. Hmm. Last year, I think it was five. Wow. The pace is always increasing. And the space station program is realizing, too, that our ability to do maintenance on the outside of the ISS is a really important, valuable thing. Absolutely. And now that we've demonstrated that we're able to do it, and just as with us as humans, the first time you do something, you always think about it a lot more, it always seems a little bit harder, but once you've done something a couple of times, you kind of get the hang of it. Yeah. And now we've done a few maintenance tasks with those power controller modules. Mm -hmm. We relatively recently did uh, what is called a main bus switching unit, which is part of the space station power system. Mm -hmm. And the demand is increasing. Hey, we've done this before. Can we slip this task in between this free-flying vehicle and this free-flying vehicle? So the, effort, the amount of work that the robots are continually doing is, just seems to be increasing. And that's the really exciting part, hmm. is because the system was built to be used. It's working fabulously well. Yeah. And the more we use it, the more the appetite of the program to use it more because we can accomplish more. That appetite's increasing, and that's just great. So usage-wise, it's it's going up, and, and you said there's a lot of stuff that it's doing, especially you were talking a lot about capturing cargo vehicles. So, you know, when, when even commercial companies are designing their, their cargo vehicle, they say, well, how, what's going to happen once it gets to the International Space Station? And they think, well, there's a robotic arm. They, the robotic arm can capture it, and they can do that. So, I mean, you're, you got a lot of missions and, and a lot more tasks coming up, and you sort of hinted at it, but what is it doing in between these cargo missions? It's, it's capturing cargo when it, when it comes to this station, but what else is it doing? Um, you mentioned the MBSU was one of them, the, the power unit. Right. Well, there is station maintenance and activities, mm -hmm. but often... Um, especially in the case of the SpaceX Dragon vehicle. Mm -hmm. It has, in, in behind the pressurized module, there is what we call the trunk, and that's a cylindrical space that's open at the back. And they have been flying external cargo in the trunk, and that cargo can only be extracted using our robots. 
Oh, yes. So we will, in the, in, for example, coming right up I, at the end of this year, SpaceX 13 mm. is going to have three items in the trunk that are going to need to be deployed. So after the big arm captures the dragon, bursts it to the space station, then we're going to go have the big arm pick up Dexter and then with Dexter reach into the trunk and take those three items out and do with them whatever they are. More and more lately, we have been handling science payloads for external. It's not actually maintenance. It's part of space station science hmm. that we're able to support with the Canadian robots. And those pieces of science hardware may need to be attached to the station truss or one of the modules someplace. Sometimes we take old experiments or old hardware that's no longer needed there's not room for it anymore on the space station. We need the attachment point. Mm -hmm. So we'll put it back in the trunk for it to be deorbited. Oh. And the trunk, the stuff in the trunk doesn't return to Earth in a conventional sense. It burns up in the atmosphere. Right. But it needs to be off the station. Sometimes you need to take out the trash. Otherwise, there's no room in your house anymore. Yeah. I mean, that, I was thinking about that as an analogy while you were describing that. It's kind of like, you know, you have a shipment to, that's delivered to your house, and then you have a robot unpack it for you and put it where it needs to be. I think we should put some of these robotic arms in, in our homes because, I mean, I really don't want to unpack my groceries anymore. Well, I can just have a cannon arm to do it. And, and often after you, take, after you take that delivery at home, there's all these boxes yeah. that you then got to get rid of. Right. Oh, yeah, so then it can... It can Pack out all my groceries, put it in the fridge, and then throw away all the boxes that it came in. There, there you, you go. go. <laughs> um, yeah, and you have a lot more capabilities, too, because you, you mentioned the Dexter, too. So at the latching end effector can grab X, Y, and Z, right? But maybe it can't gra grab uh, MLB. So, but if you attach the Dexter to it, Dexter can grab MLB, right? So is, is that kind of how it works? It has different different things that it can grab, different fingers. Right, and with Dexter, we have a much more refined, precise capability. And mm -hmm. given its size, it's, it's over, trying to remember in my head, it's over 17 meters long, the big arm. Wow. It still can precisely position its tip to within a couple of centimeters. Hmm. But with Dexter, those smaller arms designed with much more refined end effectors, the precision that is possible is actually kind of millimeter level. Wow. And we see that looking through, we have a boresight camera in those dextrosarm end effectors, and we can see ourselves maneuvering down onto the grasp fixtures. And it's a very precise capability. So if we need to remove some, you know, remove some power controller module, the positioning requirements are fairly tight yeah. And we, with Dexter, we have that capability, and it's it's pretty remarkable to see what's possible. There you go. The Dex Dexter can get exactly where, to where you need to be right. by, in, you know, matter of millimeters. Right. And also with that force and moment sensing capability that I described that we have with Canadarm Two, mm -hmm. we also have it in Dexter's 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 arms. Okay. So again, when you're inserting a box into a slot you really value that ability to detect those side forces and yeah. make sure you're not getting it bound up. Wow, and all of this is being operated from the ground, Controlled right? from the ground. So who's, I, I guess, is it, um, you know, I actually forgot to ask you this question now that I'm thinking about it, but you said you were, you were a flight controller for a while, you were robo. 
who were you talking to to pull off some of these maneuvers? Because you said it's it's a big coordination act. Obviously, on your end, there's a decent amount of communication that needs to go by to make that happen. Well, at the very beginning, and I, w I was a, a robo in those very first years, starting in 2001, at mm -hmm. that point, we were not yet actually doing ground-controlled motion. That didn't start until years later, until oh. after I actually had moved out of that job. Oh, okay. We were still commanding our system, so we would power up the uh, we would power the system up because there's no motion involved. But you know, when you power up your computer, you know, you you push you push the button that starts the power. You might do the login. You might load software in a particular way. Mm -hmm. None of that actually moved anything. Oh. We send all of those commands. We could also pan and tilt the cameras. Hmm. which is actually is motion in a small way. Yeah, yeah. But uh, for the flight controllers, the coordination is through the flight director. Ah. And for the robos, it's Houston Flight. Okay. So that's our direct real-time authority comes from the flight director. That's who we report to. Okay. So, okay, yeah, so you were moving Houston Flight. I'm going to do exactly. maneuver X, Y, Z. And that's coordinating it. with the other flight controllers in the room right. because we power certainly communications all of that interaction needs to go on to make sure and the timing just right make sure if the crew are exercising and there's a little bit of vibration we need to make sure that we stay away from that on the schedule mm -hmm. so so say for example we're doing a we're doing a maneuver to capture the uh, the dragon for example and so the crew, the crew is the one that actually captures the dragon now, right? right? So that, that's th one thing we don't do from the ground yes. is the free flyer captures and releases. So then afterwards, you have to move it into its berthing position, and you do that from the ground, right? Right. So who is doing that? Is there coordination with the Robo Console on in Mission Control Houston? Is there a Canadian Space Agency involvement as well? The Robo Console. Uh, the way it works is uh -huh. we have the front room, which is where the flight director is. Okay. And usually the robo is there, but also here in Mission Control, there's what they call a back room. Okay. And there are two more support robotics flight controllers who talk to the robo, and they're part of that team. Okay. There is also a back room in Montreal. Ah. So those supporting flight controllers, or now even sometimes even the robo, him or herself, can be up there in Montreal, still talking to Houston Flight. Right. So the, the, that command and control line of authority still works in just the same way. It's just a matter of location. There you go. And as we've learned with ground control robotics, location can be where you want it to be. Exactly. Well, you may, I mean, all this stuff that you're talking about is going on in space. So, you know, as long as you have that coordination. And it's a team effort, too. It's not just one guy on the ground doing the work. I mean, you're, you're working with a decent team whenever right. you're doing these maneuvers. So that's fantastic. But you kind of mentioned, so going back to Cannon Arm 2, you mentioned it's been up there since you said 2001? Yep. And it's, you know, 16 years of operation, which is awesome. It's, it, it, part of the spacewalks that, are he, uh, um, that we're doing here in October um, are for maintenance, right? So it needs regular maintenance. So what, what's some of the stuff that, that we're doing over these spacewalks? Well, even the maintenance system itself needs to be maintained. There so you go. here we are, and that's where we're going to be this Thursday. Okay. Uh, the latching end effectors, the Lees on Canadarm2, mm -hmm. have done all this heavy work over all these years. And what we had started to see 
a few years ago, maybe three years ago, as we had started to perceive some degradation in the Lee mechanisms. And we were able to monitor that. We, uh, we see with some precision the currents and the rates on the motors. Hmm. And we could see from that telemetry data down from the arm that the some of the mechanisms were sometimes a little bit sticky. Oh. And we talked, st studied that a lot, yeah. trended the data, and in 2015, that analysis led us to have spacewalking astronauts go out and lubricate these mechanisms in the Canadarm2 end effectors. So the uh. guys went out in spacesuits, and they had they took a a wet lubricant. It's sort of this gray goo, mm -hmm. and they were able to put that into the mechanisms that were exposed on the latching end effector to mitigate that stickiness that we had been starting to see. Okay. And that did indeed improve things. We saw some improvement right after that in both cases. Yeah. But in the case of Lee A, we, there's two ends of the arm. We simply call it A and B. Okay. And in the case of Lee A, while there was some improvement, it still, it still was kind of going downhill, and we could see uh, that. Okay. And what we saw in August, um, I think it was August 22nd, we were going to walk the arm off to go, I actually forget what we were going to go do. We were going to walk off Node 2 onto our mobile base system, mm -hmm. and the, the latches on Lie actually stalled during the course of the grapple. Oh. And that's quite unusual. Okay. So there was a lot of discussion that evening on console in real time and they released it backed off we talked about it some more and decided you know what we're going to defer this task we're going to stay here on node 2 because this is where we need to be in at that point i think it was just a couple of weeks away we were going to unberth and release spacex dragon 12 okay. which was on board the space station at that time yeah and handling the dragon vehicles we actually don't use those latches we just used those snare cables, okay. which is very much like the shuttle arm used to work. So we decided to stay there. We really wanted to protect that schedule. Right. So Get the visiting vehicles can arrive and depart on schedule. Mm -hmm. Did that, released the Dragon. That went perfectly well. And since then, since we had been already talking about end effector maintenance, we were already working with the space work experts here at JSC to start planning an end effector replacement. So that work was already going on. Okay. So when we had this this latch stall with Lie, we sort of adjusted our plan, say, okay, we're gonna go do Lie, we're gonna do it right away so we can get Canadarm2 back up to, you know, full operating potential so we can go do everything that we need to do. All right. So that got scheduled in for this Thursday. All right, so Lee A, is it being is it a swap? Are you replacing it for a new latching end effector? There is also part of our system. We have Canadarm2, we have Dexter, we also have what we call the mobile base system. Okay. And this is a structure that rides up and down the space station truss on a little trolley called the mobile transporter. Okay. So that mobile base has four operating bases for the arm. So the arm can walk onto it and go ride down the truss. Cool. But also on the mobile base, there is another latching end effector. And it's in fact an identical unit <laughs> to the one that's on the both ends of Canadarm2. We use that for 
temporarily stowing large items that we're moving around outside. So <laughs> if we need to do maintenance of something big, okay, uh, there have been a couple of times when the when a pump package failed that was part of the thermal control system, and the pumps are big, <laughs> and they needed to be temporarily stowed before they could be deorbited, yeah. and we would store those on that end effector on the on the mobile base. So that's a Lee. It's, although it's been in space since 2002, 15 years, wow. it's actually only been used 15 times. Huh. On a, so when we use it, it's very important. Yeah. But we actually only use it relatively rarely. Yeah. So on average, once a year. So what we've got, looking at that end effector on the mobile base, we've got the ideal spare latching end effector. <laughs> Not only do we know that it made it uphill safely and it's in space, yeah. we've also been checking it out once a year. <laughs> so it is it is up to speed. You're like, eh, why don't we just use this one? So we're going to use that. So what we're going to do this Thursday is we're going to move the tip of the arm with Lie right next to where that mobile base end effector is. Right. And the EVA crew are going to swap the two. There you go. Okay. So that's a big part of the first spacewalk. Right. right. And what that does is it re restores Canadarm2 to much improved operating potential. We've got a Lee A that will then have working latches. We can go do, we've got orbital ATK-8 coming right up. I think yes. it's OA-8. OA-8, that's right. And we actually would like to have working latches for that because the Cygnus vehicles like power right after they've been captured. Uh, and to give them power, the latches have to work. Okay. So we're, we are eager to go restore that capability. We'll then have this somewhat degraded end effector on the mobile base and a couple more e spacewalks this month, but then at least one more in January. And we're gonna do a little bit of a shell game. Hmm. We're going to also swap out Lee B off Canadarm2, because that also, it's not, not as degraded as Lee A, but there's also, we'd like to move it around. We wanna leave right. Lee B on the mobile base as that end effector for stowing things. Okay. It is, a little bit degraded, but good enough that we think it'll probably last the rest of the program. If we mm. only use it once per year, which has been our average, yeah, it'll last for years. It's like dog <laughs> years. It'll last a long time. <laughs> and Lee A, we will actually take off and bring inside the space station. Huh. And, you know, the two EV, sometime in January, we'll see the two spacewalking crew members bring this big oil barrel of a pack, <laughs> an end effector package yeah. into the airlock with them and we will actually bring it down to Earth inside a Dragon vehicle. Oh, it can fit where? In the trunk or in the pressurized? Well, well remember, the trunk, the trunk burns up. It needs to come down on the inside or it doesn't really come home. Oh, so it's going to be coming in the pressurized right. part. Right. Okay, very cool. And we're going to have that. We, we, it's a big, expensive package. We really don't want to burn it up. Hmm. So we're going to go to all that trouble to bring it down, send it back to our prime contractor, in okay. Brampton, Ontario, is a McDonald Detweiler. Okay. They they are the the experts, and they are going to have the task of refurbishing this latching end effector that's been in space for 16 years. And and what a witness <laughs> to the space environment and to space history this thing has been. Right. Yeah. It's been there for all this, most of space station assembly right. and all this maintenance exposed to the environment, all the atomic oxygen micrometeorites all the propellant from all the jets, <laughs> all of all of the loads that it's experienced. And we're, they're going to, you know, sort of peel it back, refurbish it, and then return it to flight status. So we will have hmm. 
another end effector spare ready when we need it. Wow. All right. <laughs> so you got it planned out. So you got new end effectors coming on, and you're going to have refurbished end effectors there. So that's pretty cool. How many end effectors total then are we are we talking about through the end of the life of the station? That was well, going to be. Well, well, there were two on Canada Arm Two, two and we're talking about swapping out both of those in the next few months. Right, right. There's one on Dexter, because that when we put Dexter down, there's an end effector on the bottom. There's okay. this one on the mobile base I've been talking about. Right. There is a spit. We're using that one on the mobile base as a spare. Uh-huh. There is another actual spare stored on the space station truss outside. It's sort of in a box safe waiting to be used, and that one will go on to Canada Arm 2 in January. Yep, yep. And we actually have another one on the ground right now that's probably going to launch in a few months' time. We hmm. call that our launch on need end effector. So you need to have enough of these things so that they can fail and you have time to replace them before you need another one. <laughs> well, it sounds like uh, A and B, was it, are the two that are on the arm right now. Right. It sounds like they've been doing a pretty, pretty good job so far. 16 years, given the complexity and, I mean, the harsh environment and all they've accomplished, it's actually amazing yeah. that they have lasted this long. <laughs> um, I, I, I was on the program early on looking at those designs. We are pretty pleased that these things have lasted so long. We, we expected maybe we'd have to do maintenance like this earlier than we have. <laughs> so no complaints. Absolutely. And it seems like you got a lot of uh, Plan B, C, D all the way, all the way down that's, too. That's the way we roll here in human <laughs> spaceflight. <laughs> hey, that's the, that's perfect, right? Because you're saying, oh, we need uh, this one's you know not working as well as it could. Oh, we got a spare over here and a spare over here, a spare over here. We'll take this one over here. So it's not bad. Um, you know, a while ago, not a while, just a few minutes ago, you talked about it's it can move on this on this mobility unit, right? It can it can walk. That is kind of a unique thing, right? So when you're thinking about uh, a robotic arm, it's not just an arm that's on the side of the station and can grab things. This thing can move to different parts of the station. How does that work? Well, the arm can walk end over end. That's why we have an end effector at each end of the arm. Uh huh. One's the base. The tip of the arm, just like the base, can reach another operating base and grapple it, engage, connect electrically, Yeah. power down, power up from the new base, and then let go and walk end over end. Wow. And the mobile, the mobile base system on the mobile transporter, as I described, uh-huh. has these base points on it. So the arm can walk onto there, ride out port or starboard to the extreme end of the truss even, do work out there. Yeah, wherever you need it. Where, yeah. Wherever it needs to be. And that's another really cool enhancement over the shuttle arm system. When you looked out the aft, the payload bay windows on the shuttle, Mm -hmm. the arm was always there. The shoulder was always exactly in the same place on the port side of the vehicle. And this this is a new system. It's a new environment. And Space Station is a big, complex structure. There's all sorts of places you might need to be. And in fact, relatively recently, we even installed a base point on one of the Russian modules, what we call the FGB. Mm-hmm. So the the forwardmost part of the Russian segment uh-huh. now has a power and data grapple fixture on it, and the arm can walk on there to reach even further back if it needs to, and we've done some surveys uh, from there. There you go. So power and data grapple fixture, that's 
When it's walking, it needs to grab onto one of those in order to get power and data so you can send a command. To be to be a to be a base point, that's right. Yeah. It needs electrical power. The arm is all electric. They are uh -huh. DC electric motors yeah. in each of the joints and each of the mechanisms on the end effector. And of course data it seems like we don't do anything without a computer these days. <laughs> the arm has onboard computers mm -hmm. that control each joint, and each joint has a computer that controls the motor module. Yep, because if you send it a command, you want it to do what, you're, what right. you're asking it to do. And also, those computers gather the information that we need to have insight into what the arm is doing and how the arm is doing. Yeah. There you go. Oh, that well, that's where you're getting that data, where you can find out. Oh, this is degrading a little bit. We're gonna yeah, yeah. Fix the, it. The, that motor's drawing a little bit more current than we thought. Let's go take a look at that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, so now, now this the Canada arm has been up there for for 16 years. You're talking about uh, robotic arms that have been thought about since the 70s, and then started flying in the 80s. This is a long history of of robotic arms. Has any of the technology been brought down to earth in, in any way, shape, or form? It has, okay. and there are a number of applications, and the ones I can think of right here are mostly medical. Hmm. Um, it's possible to do very, very fine, even microscopic surgery with versions of robotic arms, and the ah. technology that that's based on, as it turns out, is directly derived from the work that we've done on Space Station with Canadarm2. How about that? So there, there's a system in that was designed in Canada called NeuroArm, hmm. which has done brain surgery. And there's a growing list of people who have been helped by that. There's um, a smaller pediatric version called KidsArm. <laughs> wow. And there is, let me think, there's a system called Image Guided Autonomous Robot, IGAR, hmm. which got some recognition. And that's, it's able to do breast cancer um, surgeries, very, very small uh, procedures. Wow. So and medical. So this technology is proliferating. Yeah. I mean, so so you pretty much just take the Canadorm 2, which is, how, how long does it stretch? 50 meters, is it? Or is it? Uh, no, I, was it 17 or 18 meters, I think. 17 or 18 meters? Oh, okay. I'm, I'm thinking 15, but okay. Um, yeah, 17 or 18 meters. Um, you bring that down to a, <laughs> a smaller scale, in a way, right? Well, but, and, and, and it's not even just the, the physicality of it. It okay. is the, the technology of controlling coordinated motion right. in very refined ways. Right. You're, I mean, very microscopic moments, very, movements, like you were saying. Right. And is, is, the, is that, so you were talking about before this, this responsive technology where if you're moving, it can feel the turn and stuff like that. Is, that. is that part of it too? I think a big part of it is the ability to operate the robot in an environment where you can guide it visually. Okay. Working inside... Um, like working CAT scan environments where you yeah. have all of the sensors so you can really see what's going on inside someone's body and there's the robot actually operating right there while the scan's going on. Ah, okay. And but also at a microscopic level. Because, you know, we humans, if you if you reduce everything to a small enough scale, it's actually difficult to control things that precisely. Mm -hmm. But the robot if you gear everything down, the robot can really help you with that. Oh, yeah. So, you know, if your hands may not tremble, but when you're at the micron level, your hand's really trembling and you're not even aware of it. Yeah. But that's the level of control that they're able to provide 
with these microscopic brain surgery robots. How about that? And that's and that's really helping people, and that's exciting. That's very exciting. I'm thinking about the first thing that comes to mind is threading a needle with your hand. How difficult that is, just out of scale. You get to you get to that small, and you start shaking, and you right. can't see, but. If you get the instruments, you can do it. And you're talking even smaller than that. Wow. Oh, yeah, you're right, because microscopic. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, so we only have a few minutes left, so I'll, so I'll kind of we'll leave off with this. What's, what's the future of robotic arms? Is there going to be a Canada Arm 3, or is there things you're thinking about for missions beyond International Space Station? Well, we are, think, we are thinking about Canada Arm 3. Okay. And... What we do in these programs, certainly what we did with Canadarm2 is we looked at our experience on shuttle mm-hmm. and we, we took that operating paradigm and said, okay, what did we learn? What more can we do? And sure enough, if you look at Canadarm2, it's more complex, but it's a much more capable system. We're, look, we're looking at what a Canadarm3 could be. Hmm. And one thing that we are hearing a lot about in our modern world is autonomy. We uh, hear a lot these days about self-driving cars. Yep. Because the computer technology now exists where the computers can process and make some of those decisions and can do the take me from point A to point B. Right. Whereas just in you know even you know even a few years ago, that wasn't even conceivable. Mm-hmm. We're starting to look at what it would take for to start introducing more autonomy into these sort of robots. That is exciting. Right. And again, and we're not talking about, you know, I, I, I don't need to name the movies, but I'm not talking <laughs> about robots going crazy and acting independently. Sure. It's about you can calculate the most efficient way to get from this arm position to this arm position. Then you can grasp that grapple fixture. Then you can change base. Mm-hmm. And the ability, practically speaking, is there to go do that. And we're starting to look at how we might introduce that into a space environment. How about that? That's pretty exciting. Automatic. And, and again, that's that's an enhancement in terms of saving time. We're already saving time for the astronauts because the ground is doing it. Yeah. But now we can actually save time so that the ground controllers don't have to be there for every single step, every single command. Mm-hmm. And indeed, these days, if we lose calm with the space station, if there's what we call an LOS, a loss of single signal period, right? Uh, we have to sit and wait. However, uh-huh. what if you get your command in before you lose calm <laughs> and the robot could be there waiting for you yeah. at the end of its maneuver waiting for you when you come back in because <laughs> uh, loss of signals can be can get upwards of you know tens of minutes so you come back and it's already you know part of way through the job that's it, not bad it, it really de- it really depends on what's going on but yeah and and as you start to go further afield mm-hmm. if you're talking about well even the moon but certainly mars where the latencies the dele- the radio delays are such that sending a command and then waiting to see that it completed correctly before you send the next one, yes. if the round trip for that is 40 minutes, then that's really going to slow everything down. Oh. But if you can tell your robot, go move from here to there and <laughs> check back with me when you're done, that's just going to introduce a capability. It's not just making it more efficient. It gives you a capability that you didn't, you didn't have before. How about that? That's really exciting. 
Can't wait. Is there a chance the Can-Arm 3 is going to be an International Space Station sort of thing? No, or? Um, no I, th I think we are going to use the MSF, the Mobile Servicing System, and Can-Arm 2 uh -huh. as sort of a test bed for that technology. Oh, we okay. have this amazing environment where we have a, a monitored environment, we have things that need doing, yeah. we have the ability to maintain it because there's astronauts, <laughs> and also sometimes we do robotic self-maintenance. We have replaced a few of our own cameras with the robot, <laughs> and, that's and that's really cool. Yeah. But we have this environment that is really ideal to develop some of that next generation exploration technology, and we're starting to look at that. Wow. Very exciting. All right. Well, Tim, thanks for uh, coming on the show today. It seems like a pretty decent um, uh, kind of overview of robotic arms, history and capability, future. That's awesome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. There's a lot going on. Absolutely. Well, so for the listeners, if you stick um, towards the end of the um, podcast, we'll talk about, Tim and I kind of mentioned the uh, the uh, spacewalks that have been happening or, you know, that are going to happen here in October. So you can talk about that and then uh, where to go for questions and ideas. So thanks again, Tim. Thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Mr. Tim Braithwaite about uh, robotic arms in space. And we really wanted to talk about this topic because we have three spacewalks in the month of October. And all of them have to do with, in some way, shape, or form, with dealing with the Canada Arm 2 on the International Space Station. Two of them right now have already been completed. There was one on October 5th and another one on October 10th. The one on October 5th was the one that we talked about, me and Tim, in this episode where they replaced uh, a latching end effector. And then the last one, they were actually using the lube that he also talked about to grease up the inside of the latch. Well, they have one more coming up, uh, and it's going to be, I guess at the time of this release, will be next week on October 18th. Uh, so you can tune in and kind of watch what a space uh, walk is all about. You can go on the International Space Station um, Facebook account. We'll be doing a Facebook Live throughout the whole thing. Uh, but you can also go to NASA TV or wherever you get NASA TV. I think it's on Ustream as well. Uh, if you want to follow along, just kind of get the highlights of everything. Uh, we do everything on social media, so International Space Station Facebook account is a great, great place to get that information. Otherwise, you can go to uh, Twitter, which is kind of like little snippets. Uh, you know Twitter. What am I telling you about Twitter for? And uh, Instagram, at ISS. So you can use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the podcast, or maybe during the um, uh, spacewalk coverage, you can ask a question, and we'll try to get to as many as possible. I know I'll be one of the commentators uh, for the uh, spacewalks coming up, and we really try to answer some of those questions during the uh, during commentary so, so you kind of understand what's going on. So please ask those questions as it's going on. Uh, otherwise, you can submit questions for the podcast. Just uh, put in, uh, make, make sure it's mentioned for Houston, we have a podcast, HWHAP. Actually, that's how I got that question from Jennifer at the beginning of the episode. I was I'm searching for that stuff, so don't think I'm not paying attention. Uh, so this podcast was recorded on October 3rd, 2017, thanks to Alex Perryman, who always helps out with every episode, uh, John Stoll, Dan Hewitt, and of course the public affairs officer as the communicators at the, at the uh, Canadian Space Agency. Thanks again to Mr. Tim Braithwaite for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.